0: Hello and welcome to NewsHour, live from the BBC World Service with me, Rebecca Kesby. And on the programme today, NewsHour's James Kamara Sami is out and about.
1: This week I've swapped the NewsHour studio for the Russian countryside, where I've been following in the footsteps of an iconic 18th century Russian writer. Find out why in about 15 minutes' time.
0: More from James in Moscow later, and we'll be looking at how Australia plans to protect and revive dying indigenous languages like this one.
2: Whoa, whoa, whoa. gift when guy and merwin.
0: Reviving lost languages in New South Wales later on. But uh, we begin in the Middle East because after a bitter feud lasting a full decade, rival Palestinian factions, Hamas and Fatah, say they've come to a deal over the governing of the Gaza Strip. Hamas, which is described as a terrorist organisation by both the US State Department and Israel, won a landslide victory in elections in Gaza back in 2006. The following year, it wrested full control of the territory from Fatah, which controls the Palestinian National Authority in the West Bank, and relations between the two groups have been dire ever since. But with the help of Egypt, they've now managed to negotiate an agreement, which was signed today in Cairo. A senior Fatah leader in the Gaza Strip, Zakaria Al Akha, confirmed the signing of that deal.
3: We reached an agreement at dawn today regarding all the issues we had been discussing during this current round of talks in Cairo, and nearly all the issues on which we
4: had differences have been settled.
0: Well, Mr. Al-Aha said that uh, Palestinian citizens would see the benefits after the details had been finalised.
3: All the measures under discussion should be resolved very shortly, whether they are in regards to government employees, electricity or other issues. There will be a breakthrough soon and the citizens of Gaza will feel the results of this agreement. So
0: how might this deal change things more widely in the Middle East and will Fatah's resumption of a partnership with Hamas help or hinder the stalled peace process with the Israelis? Joining us live on the line now is our chief international correspondent, Lise Doucette. And uh, Lise, first of all, um, let's try and get a bit more detail on exactly what has been agreed because it seems that Fatah will take over the civilian control of Gaza but Hamas, it seems, will keep its military wing?
5: Well, that is exactly one of the issues that we're still waiting to hear details on. You heard the FATO representative, he said all the issues, and then he said nearly all the issues. Let's go by what they have announced in Cairo, the two sides say they have agreed on, and that is that when it comes to what is essentially the only Real crossing, aside from the Israeli, heavily controlled Israeli crossings, the only exit for Hamas, the residents of the Gaza Strip with the outside world is the Rafah crossing with Egypt by November the first Hamas 's own security uh, security forces will have left that crossing and will be replaced by the presidential guards of the Palestinian Authority, in other words, it will underline that there is only one security force and it is under the overall Palestinian authority and there was a statement to suggest that those forces would spread to other parts of the other of the edges of the Gaza strip we also heard that yes as you mentioned the administrative control which will be hugely important he mentioned the electricity shortage. Gazans are living with about two to three hours of electricity a day, and that has an impact not just on uh, Gazan homes. The hospitals don't have enough electricity, so people's uh, people's health is being affected. Cars don't enough you have enough fuel. The United Nations has been urging all sides to try to end the rift, and this is what we think has pushed Hamas to finally negotiate. But the question you mentioned: twenty five thousand men under arms. In the Gaza Strip, the military wing of Hamas, President Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority has said we don't want a Hezbollah, in other words, an independent armed group operating in Gaza. But so far we haven't heard. In fact, Hamas has said we are not going to disband our military wing, but we will work more closely with the Palestinian Authority. Will that be enough? certainly not for Israel.
0: And so when Hamas took over the running of Gaza, it did seem, didn't it, Lise, to be crossing into the mainstream, trying to look a bit more like a legitimate political party. Is this a retreat then for them on the political process? And if so, where does that leave relations with Israel? Because they have been prepared to speak to Fatah. But if Fatah is now in partnership with Hamas again, does that strain relations again with the Israelis?
5: Well, I remember the elections in 2006. Fatah and the outside world, including the United States, was shocked that Hamas had won these elections. And so the talk was, let them bring them into the democratic process. Let them show that they can be a legitimate governing force. By the next year, however, they had completely taken over the Gaza Strip. And for the last decade, there has been that rift. Now, since that time... Hamas has constantly been under pressure to change its founding charter, which still talks about the, the destruction of the State of Israel. The listeners may remember that they made some changes to that charter um, in the last year. It was seen as a huge breakthrough by Hamas, but still fell short for Israel. So there's still a big question mark about Gaza, whether it is a resistance movement or a governing movement. It says it is both because bear in mind that the so called peace process between Israel. And the Palestinians is basically going nowhere. So Hamas feels, why should we then uh, give in, give up all of our rights or or, our bargaining positions if, in fact, that process is going nowhere? And you mentioned earlier the question, will this help the negotiating process? Well, no, because Israel does not want to sit at the same table with Hamas and the United States in the past and I've heard this from Palestinian officials, has tried to stop any reconciliation between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. It wants them to be brought in to stop, to end its armed wing, to change its charter, to accept the legitimacy of the state of Israel. And it shows no sign of doing that yet, even though it has said it wants to basically run the Gaza Strip, wants to be part the Palestinian authority. It doesn't. It's not a movement like Islamic State and the other extremist groups.
0: OK, great to speak to you. Thank you so much. That's our chief international correspondent live on the line, Lise Doucette. Now, within the next couple of days, President Trump is expected to announce whether he will certify the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, which was put together under President Obama, and which is supported by China, France, Russia, Germany and the UK. It stipulates that Iran will freeze its nuclear programme and allow greater international scrutiny of its facilities in exchange for lifting of sanctions. President Trump is famously critical of this deal, which he's described as a disaster, amongst other things. Well, last night the former EU foreign policy chief Lady Ashton, who helped negotiate that deal, told the BBC's diplomatic correspondent James Landale that the agreement is working and warned the US against trying to bolt on any new conditions.
6: This is an agreement that is working. It's an agreement that does what it says on the tin. It doesn't try and do more. There are other issues, plenty of them, to be dealt with. But it does tackle the issue that it was asked to deal with. And that needs to be understood and recognised in Washington. And hopefully from there, they'll carry on with it.
3: But Donald Trump says it's not working, that it's a one-sided deal. And particularly, it isolates Iran's behavior on the nuclear issue, from all the other stuff it's doing in terms of its regional aggression, doesn't he have a point there?
6: Well, the UN Security Council mandate, which I dealt with and was under, was very clear, which was to give people confidence in the peaceful nature of Iran's nuclear program. There are plenty of other issues that concern people about Iran, but that was not what this agreement was about. The agreement does what it says and therefore should be allowed to continue. If Iran is shown that the president is not prepared to recertify, it then goes to Congress, and depending on what they do, there will have to be then decisions made by the other countries and so on. But it starts to look pretty messy, and it's harder to imagine that you could then bring people to the table to say, "Okay, we need to talk about other issues now.
3: Is it possible for... Donald Trump to refuse to certify the deal and for the deal to survive?
6: As everyone knows, this is not a bilateral agreement. It's an agreement that involved the permanent members of the Security Council plus Germany. It began as three European nations, Britain, France and Germany, a long time ago. Then later, for all sorts of reasons, joined by the Russians, by the Americans, by the Chinese, so you've got the big five, if you like. And so the other countries have a huge stake in this and a huge stake in seeing the agreement continue. So the question is whether the pressure that they can put on will enable America to stick with an agreement. That was the
0: EU, former EU foreign policy chief, Lady Ashton, there. Well, Dina Esfandiari is a research associate at the Centre for Science and Security Studies at King's College London. She joins us on the line from New York. Um, first of all, what do you anticipate the president might decide to do? And just to pick up from what Lady Ashton was saying there, do you think this deal could hold together without the US?
7: So I think that uh, President Trump has made it very clear that he isn't going to certify the deal. So I think that's what the entire international community right now is expecting to happen. Now, whether that will scrap Uh, the deal completely. I think it's uh, fair to say that it won't. I think it passes the buck down to Congress, giving them 60 days to decide what they want to do. Um, And as Lady Ashton rightly pointed out, this isn't an agreement just between the US and Iran, but between a number of other countries who are all going to continue implementing the deal today. Um, So while it will damage the deal, Uh, it will not scrap it completely and the other countries are still going to be bound by it. And just to be
0: clear, at this point, the president couldn't uh, just pull out of the deal as it is at the moment.
7: Uh, Well, he could. Uh, There's nothing that stops him from doing it uh, other than the fact that it would be a terrible idea because it would make the US look very bad uh, in Before in front of its allies. So I don't think he's likely to do that. I think the the thing that he will do is that he won't certify and that's as far as he will go for now.
0: And so how is Iran likely to react to this and what would uh, keep their, are they likely to keep their side of the bargain and what would be the advantages to doing that?
7: I don't think that Iran is going to react in a rash manner at the moment because we have to realise that Iran for the first time in a very long time is the international actor that today looks reasonable uh, compared to uh, Donald Trump's USA. Uh, And so I think the Iranians are going to continue implementing the deal. I think they're going to continue holding their end of the bargain. But I think what they are going to do is they're going to lobby Europeans like they have been doing for the past few months to make sure that they get the benefits of the deal, the benefits that they were promised as part of the nuclear agreement, such as, you know, better, further sanctions relief and more business coming into Iran so that at least they gain something from continuing to implement this agreement.
0: Okay, well, thank you very much for joining us live on the line there from New York. That's Dina Esfandiari, their Research Associate at the Centre for Science and Security Studies at King's College, London, currently in New York. And uh, as she was saying there, we are expecting that decision within the next couple of days or so. uh, The World Service will bring you uh, the details on that as we get them. Still to come on NewsHour in the latest of her essays ahead of the 19th Chinese Communist Party Congress next week. Our China editor Carrie Gracie reports on the growing political repression in the country.
8: In a return to the tactics of the Mao era, many prisoners of conscience are required to recant their beliefs in stage-managed confessions broadcast on TV news. Some even accuse foreigners of turning them into pawns against China.
0: More on that to come and a reminder of our main headlines this hour. The militant group Hamas and its Palestinian rivals Fatah have signed a reconciliation agreement in Cairo and the EU's chief Brexit negotiator says talks with Britain have not made enough progress to move on to future trade agreements. This is News Hour from the BBC, with me Rebecca Kesby in London and James kamara in Moscow.
9: And that's
1: a clue about why I'm here. The anthem of the Communist Party, which of course came to power in this country almost exactly 100 years ago. Well, as Russians prepare to mark the centenary of the October Revolution, a politically complex uh, occasion in this post-communist era, I've been finding out what they think of a leader who helped to define the last century, Vladimir Lenin, and one who's already making his mark on this century, Vladimir Putin. Well, President Putin turned 65 at the weekend, an occasion marked by gifts and praise Plus, a smattering of thwarted protests by supporters of Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader whose anti-corruption campaign has captured the imagination of many young Russians and earned him disqualification from next year's presidential election, officially because of a conviction. Well, Mr Putin is yet to announce that he'll run, but few doubt he will, or that he'll be re-elected. But is his magic formula of projecting power abroad and bringing order at home starting to wear thin, with lower oil prices and Western sanctions placing strains on Russia's economy. Well, I've been trying to find some answers this week on a journey that begins in the president's home city of St Petersburg with some history and a rain-drenched poetry reading. What you can hear is an epic pre-revolutionary Russia prose poem being read out. This is uh, Alexander Pushkin's Yevgeny Yegin and it's just a member of the public reading it in a, a tent here. At a spot that is absolutely key to the Russian Revolution of a hundred years ago. Revolutions, I should say, because this is where Vladimir Lenin came in April 1917 to the Finland station to give a rousing speech in the year of two revolutions. Of course, when Lenin arrived here, this country had already had one revolution without his participation. The Tsar Nicholas II had been overthrown, and a new provisional government headed by Alexander Kerensky had very high hopes. Here's Kerensky talking to the BBC about that
10: time decades later. We, provisional government, in collaboration... We're all saying forces in Russia, we create new social regime in Russia based on social justice in accordance with desire of enormous majority, 80% of peasants and 10% of workers and intellectuals. It is our aim. But this
1: wasn't the revolution that Lenin wanted. He had no trust in the provisional government, any kind of liberal authority. He wanted to smash the system and for the workers to take over. No matter how democratic or how free a republic, if it is ruled by capital and has private land ownership, the state will be controlled by a small minority, mostly by capitalists or the rich. But since the communist system collapsed, private ownership is very much back and it is making the Russians happier than they've been for ages, according to the St Petersburg sociologist Edward Panarin.
4: Russians are about as happy as they have been for a very long, long time.
1: Although there is a bit of a paradox, they certainly seem happy with the president, but everyone has their daily worries and concerns, economic concerns.
4: Sure, uh, there are quite a few things that people are unhappy with. However, it's all relative. As you know, the weather in St Petersburg is worse than maybe in London. But on the other hand, there is Siberia, and we are better off, right? And so Russians can compare their situation with that of Georgia, Belarus, and uh, maybe uh, Ukraine. Well, let's turn to next
1: year. We've got an election. Everyone assumes President Putin will will stand again. Does he have any serious opposition?
4: No. (laughs) Well, you know, there is Alexei Navalny, who is trying to create an opposition, I I don't think, however, he presents a serious challenge to the current government. Alexei Navalny is a showman, really. The current government uh, is supported by the people. It's supported by very large chunks of the elite. Uh, There are some opposition within the elite, but most people, both on the mass level and on the elite level, support the government.
1: And I wonder if that brings us back to where we started. Is that almost something that's been bequeathed by the revolution here 100 years ago, that Russians don't want upheavals, they want a smooth transition?
4: We have a a very painful history, at least in the 20th century, and uh, Russians are very wary about having another revolution.
1: The sociologist Edward Panarin, well, that's one view of view from the city, but does it tell the whole story? 200 years or so ago, the writer Alexander Radishev lifted the lid on some uncomfortable social and economic realities in the countryside between Russia's two wealthiest cities, and he recorded his findings in the iconic book Journey from St Petersburg to Moscow. It angered rulers and it inspired revolutionaries, and it's inspired us to follow in his footsteps to explore some of the poorer parts of European Russia. Well, while Radyshev was given uh, driven in a horse and cart, my first encounter is with the driver of a modern-day beast of the road, a long-distance trucker, Sergei Vladimirov. And in a period when voices of dissent in Russia have been scarce, truckers organised protests against a new road tax have stood out for their persistence. Well, it's time to do a bit of actual trucking now. I've come to the main highway leading out of St Petersburg to Moscow. We're meeting up with Sergei and with his truck it's a pretty impressive beast i have to say it's got a very bright yellow cabin with flames painted down the side it's a 16 wheeler and on the side of it is a big poster for the truckers association with the phrase the future is in our hands are you with us so let's get into the cabin and hit the road A little bed here in the back I guess this is where they have a kip The radio crackles to life, but this is no ordinary radio. These are truckers calling in, letting their colleagues know where they are in Russia at this moment before starting up a general conversation. The distances between them are big, but there's no small talk. They speak about the need to unite to battle for their rights and to persuade more colleagues to join the movement. There are risks involved in these protests. Sergei tells me that he could lose his driver's licence as a result of his actions. So what has he got from this experience?
11: My view of what's going on is now completely different. That was the hardest thing.
1: Did it change the way you thought about the country?
11: Yes, it changed my view about the country and the government. My grandfathers fought for our freedom, but we're being forced into slavery. Putin.
1: What do you think about President
11: Putin? My view of him is negative. I believe it's his fault that we have a lot of corruption and chaos. When we travel around the country, we see an economy in decline. We see factories,
1: once successful, being closed down. It's hard. You've decided now that protests aren't enough on their own, haven't you? And and you want your leader to actually run for president of Russia? Yes,
11: yes. We believe the system itself needs changing.
1: So what happens if you don't get anywhere, that you lose your licence, the protests fizzle
11: out. What next? To be honest, I don't want to talk about what's next to the media. We will carry on fighting, that's for sure.
1: Determined trucker Sergei Vladimirov, well, later on in the programme, I'll be continuing my journey in a smaller vehicle, and I'll be hearing the point of view of a successful farmer.
0: We look forward to it. That's James Kamarasamy there with us live on the programme from Russia today. More of him coming up later. You're listening to a podcast edition of NewsHour, available twice each day straight after the live edition of the programme. And if you're enjoying this, then you know you can take a look at other podcasts from the BBC World Service. You could download Witness, for example, which is remarkable stories, first-hand accounts from important moments in history. Or for a roundup of the very best news on the BBC World Service, try our Global News podcast. Coming up next, more details on the killing of a prominent Western recruiter for the so-called Islamic State in Syria. But first, next week in New York, the clubs of the National Football League will meet to discuss the issue of players kneeling during the national anthem. The protests began over a year ago and were intended to highlight the issue of police brutality, specifically against young black men. The protests, though, have snowballed in recent weeks since President Trump called for players who knelt to be sacked. Richard Conway reports.
12: It started off as a relatively low-key protest by a solitary football player and has grown into the major issue in American sport and a talking point throughout the world. In August 2016, Colin Kaepernick, a quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, remained seated whilst the American national anthem was being played before a game. He continued to do so as the season progressed and he explained his motives to journalists.
9: Ultimately, it's to bring awareness and make people... You no know, realise what's really going on in this country. There are a lot of things that are going on that are unjust, people aren't being held accountable for, and that's something that needs to change. You know, this country stands for freedom, liberty, justice for all, and it's not happening for all right now. Specifically,
12: he was protesting police brutality and showing support for the Black Lives Matter movement. But for many people, what Colin Kaepernick was doing was disrespecting the U.S. flag, and by extension, U.S. troops. Nate Boyer is a former Green Beret who, after spending six years in the Army, was signed by the Seattle Seahawks.
9: I mean, I grew up a 49ers fan. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. I was a big Colin Kaepernick fan. So when I saw that, I was just very confused. And Immediately, I felt like I was betrayed in a way. And that was my initial reaction yeah. <laughs> before I stopped and thought a, a little bit. But then you did do something about it, didn't you? You wrote right. an open letter. Yeah. I was approached uh, to write an opinion piece about the whole situation. And I think what what they were looking for was me taking a side. And I didn't do that because it wasn't gonna help anything anyway. So instead I wrote an open letter to Colin as if I was sitting down with him like I'm sitting down with you right now. And I just explained my relationship to the flag, my feelings toward this. And then something extraordinary happened. Colin Kaepernick got in touch with you. Yeah, he reached out. We talked about non-football and non-politic related stuff, just getting to know each other. Mm -hmm. And then we talked about this, we talked about, you know, why he was doing it. And I showed him text messages from, you know, friends of mine who were upset, ones that were trying to be understanding, just the mixed bag. And by the end of the conversation, we kind of came to this idea of taking a knee alongside his teammates instead. You know, I wanted him to stand, but I want him to stand and all these guys to stand because they feel the same pride that I feel. They feel like we're going in the right direction. They feel like things are changing. I don't want people to stand out of obligation, so I thought taking a knee was more respectful to people in my community. The intention
12: may well have been to show respect, but for many people that certainly isn't the result. Colin Kaepernick no longer plays for the San Francisco 49ers, but the protests he instigated continue and are likely to do so for some time.
0: Richard Conway reporting, and there'll be more on the Take a Knee protest during Sports Hour from 9 o'clock this Saturday. You're listening to News Hour Live from the BBC in London with me Rebecca Kesby. A key Western recruiter for the so-called Islamic State has been reportedly killed in a US drone strike in Syria. Salian Jones didn't exactly fit the typical jihadi profile. She was a blonde 48-year-old former punk rocker, but she became one of the most persuasive recruiters for ISIS, luring Western women to Syria, posing with Kalashnikovs plotting terror attacks in the UK. Perhaps most controversially, taking with her her son, to join the Islamic State group in Syria. Well, let's get more details on this with our security correspondent, Frank Gardner, who joins us now. Um, Frank, first of all, what do we know about the circumstances of this?
3: We only know what's being reported, and I think it's important to say it's not confirmed. No one is coming out categorically to say it's been confirmed. Why? Because without actually gathering DNA evidence on the ground, which is impractical because the drone strike that is believed to have killed her back in June took place inside ISIS-controlled territory. And it's not possible, or it would be hugely risky to get a team of investigators onto the ground, uh, risking their own lives to do that. But certainly US sources are quoted as being pretty certain that they have killed her in June in a drone strike. Um, And that was close to the Syria-Iraq border. She's been living in Raqqa, the de facto capital of of a so-called Islamic State, which is now 90% out of their hands. So she's been trying to flee what's left of the shrinking caliphate, uh, trying to get out of the danger zone, um, but she's probably left it too late.
0: And what do we know of her role with ISIS and specifically this idea of recruiting people? Because the number of videotapes, I think, in which she uh, is shown making all sorts of threats.
3: Yeah, I mean, let's be clear on what she is and or what she has been and what she hasn't been. She is not a military fighter, although she's posed with a Kalashnikov assault rifle dressed in a naqab. There's a ridiculous picture of her but dressed as a nun pointing a gun at the camera. And one report had her as being in charge of the Anwar al-Awlaki battalion. That's that's just a lot of show. Where she did have value to, to IS, to a so-called Islamic State, is... Uh, as a recruiter and propagandist. And she was quite iconic in that sense because here was somebody who had completely turned their back on a very public aspect of British life. She was a member of a punk rock rock band. She married somebody uh, who was about 30 years younger than her. She took her son, as you mentioned, 12-year-old with her. to to go and live in the caliphate, the self-proclaimed caliphate, and appeal to others to come and do that. But she was more than that. She sent a lot of vitriolic, hate-filled messages onto the Internet, encouraging people to carry out attacks, She is reported to have taken part in attack planning in the West. So she was dangerous. That's why she was on the so-called kill list.
0: And you mentioned there, Frank, that uh, she did take uh, her son, who I think is about 12 years old, so very little when he was Mm. taken there. Do we know anything about his whereabouts now?
3: We don't. And the reports coming out of the United States say that the reason why four months has elapsed since her reported death was that there is still some question about whether or not Jojo, her son, was with her at the time. So even though he is believed to have been brainwashed, indoctrinated and taken part in some pretty unsavory things, nevertheless, he is a child. And um, therefore, there are restrictions on what the CIA and the US military can do in terms of targeting. So I think they've been un- unli- uh, unwilling to kind of confirm the strike up until now, but the reports seem to have leaked out and they're not being denied by Whitehall officials. Um, We just don't know whether he was involved or not. I mean, let's not forget the, the impact of airstrikes and missile strikes on Raqqa and remaining pockets of ISIS territory is huge. Not a lot of people are surviving this.
0: Okay, thank you so much for coming in. That's our security correspondent, Frank Gardner, joining us live there. Now, next week, the Chinese Communist Party will meet in Beijing to confirm another five years for Xi Jinping and his policies. On the world stage, Mr Xi likes to project an image of a confident 21st century statesman steadying an uncertain world on climate change trade north korea but as our china editor carrie gracie reports now in the latest of her series of essays on chinese power at home mr xi and his party nurses something of an enemy mentality
8: walk down any city street in china and it's no surprise to meet a wall of bright red characters proclaiming the communist party's core socialist values these include democracy freedom and justice But the irony is that the party is frightened of people with strong values. And one of its core principles is to destroy all enemies. The party hasn't always been quite so fierce. It learned a painful lesson from its fanatical excesses under Chairman Mao. And the leaders who came after often restrained their drive for control. But under Xi Jinping, the core socialist values are sung in kindergartens and vows of loyalty are compulsory again competing values are taboo. The result is that China safe for those who pay lip service to slogans, but unsafe for those whose real convictions might provide a rallying cry for opposition or make the party's values look hollow. Even raising awareness of sexual harassment can be an offence, or writing history if it conflicts with the party narrative. Labour activists are in trouble, Christians, Muslims, oh, and lawyers, despite Xi Jinping's insistence that China must be ruled by law. And it's no longer enough now for the party to lock such people up. In a return to the tactics of the Mao era, many prisoners of conscience are required to recant their beliefs in stage-managed confessions broadcast on TV news. Some even accuse foreigners of turning them into pawns against China. It is sobering to see a generation of brave lawyers who've withstood much over the years, reduced now to denouncing former colleagues and begging for mercy. But destroying a civil society like this ensures that China's only alternative to communist rule would be chaos. And with a living memory of civil war in the 1940s and mob violence in the 1960s, many Chinese citizens do fear chaos. So where outsiders may see prisoners of conscience, the Chinese public often see losers or traitors. Even those who don't mostly look the other way, as the costs of doing anything else seem unacceptably high. The same is true of many foreigners. When Nobel Peace Prize winner Liu Xiaobo died of liver cancer last summer after eight years in jail, world leaders did not denounce his treatment. And for fear of offending Beijing... Most now avoid meeting the Dalai Lama or speaking up for democracy activists in Hong Kong. Halfway through Xi Jinping's decade in power, the party silenced most of its enemies, but it's still on constant alert. Even technology is suspect. For example, a chatbot recently responded to the prompt Long Live the Communist Party by asking, Do you think such a corrupt and useless political system can last long? After reprogramming, the chatbot had learned to change the subject.
0: Our China editor Carrie Gracie there, and we'll have another essay from her tomorrow. Australia Now and a new attempt to protect and resurrect dying Aboriginal languages. The New South Wales government, Regional Government has introduced an Aboriginal Languages Bill pledging to help communities revive ancient languages that are in danger of being lost forever. Dr Raymond Kelly from the University of Newcastle, who is himself an Aborigine, told me why he welcomes the move
2: there's somewhere near six, seven hundred languages in the entire continent of Australia. So the challenges are going to be great because lots of the material that we're dealing with in terms of recordings is very uneven. In some places, we've got people recorded on sound files. In other places, it's just sketch material from people writing language descriptions. So it's going to be very difficult to do it. But we think we can because what we still have in our communities is people who can still communicate, even though it's in very short pieces, uh, small words, uh, small sayings, uh, songs. We still think that they're a good building block to return languages to communities.
0: Yeah, I suppose that is one of the difficulties, isn't it? A lot of these languages would have been pretty much oral and not many traces of them written down.
2: No, but what we do know is that there are those root words that travel around the entire length of the country to do, to make, to become... They're all very much the same, but what we really have to do is to try and invest with those old people that are still in communities, who still have some sense of language and sense of country. We just don't know what our opportunities are, but we're we're certainly looking forward to getting involved with it.
0: What is in a language that resonates through the generations? What do you get culturally from a, a language, which I guess is part of the reason you want to preserve them?
2: It's that sense of country, it's that sense of belonging to a place... that sense of tradition. And for us, we're also dealing with the fact that the process of colonisation has put us into a position where we feel sometimes less than. So we're also dealing with a language of being less than. So lots of those words have been retained. They're swear words. They didn't come from a swear word, but they've become that.
0: You mentioned uh, that one of the ways these languages have been preserved is through song. And I just wonder if you might have... An example of that for us.
2: I do have a song and this is an important song for young males obviously uh, the rites of passage. So it goes like this. Gorrigirien gorrien gorriborgen gitwengan gaymarwan gorrigirien gorrien gorriborgen gitwengan gaymarwan wo gitwengan marwan gorrigirien gorrien gorriborgen gitwengan gaymarwan Uh, My grandfather taught me that song and I've known that song since I was 14 years of age because it was the very first time I learned it and uh, understood what its meaning was. It basically means everybody, everybody be happy because right here is a young man and he's been educated.
0: I suppose some people listening to this might think that, you know, resources being poured into learning these languages may distract young kids from learning other things in school. I mean, is there a danger that if young people are learning these languages, that's less time for maths and physics and history and that sort of thing?
2: Well, what we want to do is we want to use that material in that way because we've been in this country as a continuous culture for 65,000 years. How can we use this language into those sciences? And we think we can because we talk about things like the megafauna that were in our country 6,000 years ago, the rise of the sea level. We talk about tsunamis. So there are ways in which we can use this language to engage young kids in the education system. But the truth for us, Rebecca, is that Indigenous kids in this country are not doing very well in school. We're falling out of the system early. We're falling through the cracks, and there aren't that many jobs. So we really have to find a way to engage with the education system to make those kids see visions for themselves an opportunity, and then we need to build a framework around some of those uh, employment opportunities.
0: And that was Dr Raymond Kelly from the University of Newcastle in New South Wales and our thanks to him for that impromptu uh, little sing-song there. What a lovely tune. Thanks there, Dr Kelly. Uh, let me just bring you some news that's been breaking in the past half hour or so. The United States is withdrawing from the UN cultural agency UNESCO, citing concern over finances and anti-Israel bias. The United States had cancelled its substantial budget contribution to UNESCO in 2011 in protest at the decision to grant the Palestinians full membership. In reaction to today's news, the Director General of UNESCO, Erini Bokova, said, I wish to express profound regret at the decision of the USA to withdraw from UNESCO. That news just coming in in the last few minutes. And our top headline this hour, the militant group Hamas and its Palestinian rivals Fatah have signed a reconciliation agreement today in Cairo. This is Rebecca Kesby with NewsHour live from the BBC World Service in London and we can head straight back now to Moscow again where we find James Kamara Sami, Jamie, what have you been up to?
1: Thanks very much, Rebecca. Well, that's right, I've been travelling this week between Russia's old capital, St Petersburg, and its present day one, Moscow, and I've been following a route taken by the writer Alexander Radishev on an iconic journey of social exploration around two centuries ago. Earlier on in the programme, you heard from me in a 12-ton truck trundling along the main highway. My next stop, a village called Chudova. Well, when Radishev was in the region, he met a peasant working all hours of the day for a cruel landowner. I found a more benevolent farm boss and a rather different type of worker. Well, having spoken to the guys who transport goods around Russia, let's uh, talk to someone who produces goods. I've come about two hours south of St Petersburg. I'm in a huge greenhouse. It's pouring with rain outside, you can probably hear. And workers on this farm are clearing away the last of the season's tomato plants. Now, if you listen closely, you can hear that they're not speaking Russian, they're actually speaking mandarin because these are chinese migrant workers in fact most of the people who work here come from other parts of the world so what are the challenges what are the advantages of being a farmer in modern day russia let's talk to the man who runs this farm and owns it
13: clement petrovich Pak. In the past three years, we've had huge growth. We're producing a lot more than before. In fact, we can produce as much as we like. The ban on imported agricultural products has really helped us. (laughs) You have a lot of Chinese workers here. Why is that? Well, that's because there aren't enough people here. You can see this greenhouse. Imagine that we have 400 greenhouses like this. And the nearby village only has about 1,000 residents, including the elderly. And what do the local people make of all these migrants? <laughs> they love them. They say, well done, chaps. Without you, we wouldn't have any tomatoes or cucumbers here. So do the Chinese work better than locals? They are paid by the peace. Look, they're away from their family. They have come here solely to earn money. At 6pm, a local worker would end his shift and go home to his family and his children. The Chinese would say, why don't I work another two hours and earn more? And here, a Chinese worker earns nearly $800 a month on average. And what kind of profit are you
12: making? In good
13: weather, our profits reach 30 or 35%. But then we've invested nearly six million dollars. You see, we had the confidence and decided to bite the bullet. And nearly ten years later, here I am, still at it. To be honest, it's very hard work. But what can you do? You've got to carry on.
1: Farmer Clement Petrovich Pak, well, joining me to discuss some of the things I've uh, heard about on the first part of my journey. We have the Russian political scientist Tatiana Vorozhikina from the Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences, and Mikhail Fishman, who's former editor in chief of the Moscow Times, currently presenter on the independent television channel TV Rain. Welcome to the program, both of you, Tatiana. First of all, what are the what are the social implications of of this farming model we just heard?
14: Well, I would say that this is a good example of two things. First, of good and of a positive impact of uh, counter-sanctions introduced by the Russian government, because it uh, it uh, made uh, uh, farming produce grows, uh, But at the same time, we see a sort of enclave agriculture. It doesn't involve local people, because uh, this um, farmer, he involves and he uses mainly the workforce of Chinese migrants. And uh, he sells his produce in the big cities and in Chudova. So this is kind of a uh, kind of enclave agriculture we could see in Latin America at the beginning of the last century.
1: Michal Fishman... The sanctions have had a positive effect on farmers, it would seem, but or the counter-sanctions, should we say, the, the measures the Russian government introduced. What about the rest of the economy?
10: Well, indeed, uh, import substitution in farming did did work, and uh, um, farming grew uh, significantly. Significantly, I even know some, <laughs> some friends of mine uh, switched to producing cheese, uh, f- for example. But unfortunately, um, this um, boost in farming... Uh, does not reimburse repay the price that the Russian economy has paid for being excluded from global economy due to Western sanctions imposed on Russia uh, in 2014. And if we look at numbers, we will see that, uh, yes, the Russian economy has adapted somehow to to the sanctions. This year, it has shown, starts showing some signs of growth, but it's still very low, below 1%. The expectations for next year, uh, well, the Ministry of Economic Development expects 2% growth. Some other experts expect uh, 1.5, 1.6. It's still far below uh, the average world growth. So that means that Russia will still keep falling behind the whole world.
1: And, and, and Tatiana, as far as consumers are concerned, they're not seeing lower prices, are they, despite all this extra supply coming from farms?
14: It's not an extra supply, because this is just a substitute uh, for the supply uh, cutted uh, from the uh, imported goods. So the prices are slightly growing, they are falling during the seasons, but there is, an, but there is no fall in prices. And there was a significant fall in people's incomes in the 14 and 15. So that's why people, uh, uh, there is, uh, well, economy, uh, agricultural economy is growing, but there is no corresponding consumer demand for it.
1: Let's turn to what we heard earlier in the programme that the truckers and their protests, which were, were pretty big a couple of years ago, but seem to have lost momentum, haven't they? I mean, they're talking about this this. Extra fee that's being charged on roads, and that that talks a bit about the problems of infrastructure that Russia has.
14: Yes, this was an idea to uh, collect an extra fee from the big trucks, which are mainly transport these agricultural produce to big cities from the farmers, and which is uh, which is also reflected in higher prices for the final consumers. But these protests were were they were a very good example of the of a social protest which was politicizing which uh, turned political, but uh, it was uh, the reaction was very forceful of there, and it was diminishing.
1: Right, and Michal, briefly, I mean, what political effect, if any, of these protests going to have?
10: Well, as you as you as you said, the um, Trakist tra- tra- movement, protest movement lost uh, lost momentum. Well, we can put it in other words: uh, it has been largely defeated by by the government using which used its usual tactics of combining intimidation with meeting uh, some of their demands half way, uh, sort of, but uh, um, but it's pretty much uh, nowhere since since then.
1: Michal, we have to leave it there. Michal Fishman, Tatiana Varazekina, thank you both very much. Tomorrow I'll be talking about two types of icons. I'll be asking village school children what they know about Lenin and speaking to the priest of the church where President Putin's parents were baptised. That's all from NewsHour. From me, James Kamara, Sami and Rebecca Kesby in London. Goodbye.
6: NewsHour has been a download
8: from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.